21. John chapter 21, we're going to be in verse 15, pick up where Pastor Kent left off last week. Lord willing, uh, we will finish the Gospel of John next week. Verse 15, I'm going to read just through verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Father, we believe your word is a living and active word. This is no mere book before us. You have preserved your word in written form, but it is not just words, Lord. It is spirit and life for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give sight and hearing, Lord, that we would receive what You have revealed here by faith, and that You would transform us by it in the way that You transformed Peter by Your Word. That You would restore our souls as You restored Peter's souls through Your words. We ask You to do it today, Lord, for Your name's sake and for our good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage before us uh, is about the restoration of a believer's soul. And there are a few things in the Bible I would rather preach on, a uh, few things that I think are, are greater blessings for us in Christ than the restored soul uh, that only Christ can minister to us. Uh, this is a glorious thing to study. Uh, before we get there, I, I want us to back up though and actually ask this very basic and necessary question, what is the soul? What is the soul? Uh, you know that part of the human psyche that psychologists know exists but don't fully understand? Uh, that inner part of our being that is eternal and is inside of our bodies? Uh, Jesus spoke about this a lot. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Uh, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? The, the soul is very important. Uh, I think pastors understand this because of the weighty uh, word of, of Hebrews 13. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Uh, and so what... 
what gives me great joy is to see in those uh, under my care, their souls doing well. Uh, your souls doing well. And what grieves me and burdens me is when I see the souls of believers that are damaged and unhealthy and not doing well. And here's what I want us to see in this passage this morning. Uh, I'll say this twice so that we can really get what I think is the main point here. That one can be a genuine believer and still do great damage to your soul through sin. You can be a genuine believer and still do great damage to your soul through sin. So much damage that only Christ Himself can restore you. Only Christ Himself can restore your soul to health again. I think that's what this passage teaches us. Uh, Brothers and sisters, this is not an allegory before us. This is not a metaphor. This is a historical account of the leader of the 12 apostles, the one chosen uh, that Jesus said on this rock, I will build my church. Uh, This is the account of Peter's uh, life and Christ's ministry to his life after his worst sin and failure and the restoration of the soul that Christ brought to him. And before we can get into the really good part of this, uh, I want to back up and and kind of walk us us into this. Johannian literary structure is something that I've been studying for a long time. I would not call myself a, a, a scholar of, of, of John or a Johannian scholar. I would say that I'm a serious student of Johannian literature because over half of my, or about half of my ministerial career, I've been studying and preaching uh, the writings of John. Uh, so we've I've spent a few years in the epistles of John and in Revelation. We've spent seven years now in the gospel of John. And when you spend hundreds of hours with someone, uh, with, a, with a biblical author, you begin to notice things uh, that they're doing uh, in their writings. And one thing that we notice in the gospel of John is that John is giving uh, two separate biographies parallel to each other. He's giving us a, something of a biography of Peter and of Judas simultaneously. And, and, and then going back and forth between these two, kind of juxtaposing these two men uh, throughout the book, which is not accidental. It's very purposeful. Now, why is he doing this? Well, it's because he is, he is seeking to show us the difference between what we would call true faith and false faith. No other author does this. Matthew doesn't do this. Mark doesn't do this. Luke does not do this. Uh, only the Apostle John gives these two parallel biographies and spends much time on Judas and on Peter to highlight the difference between true and false faith. And I, and I emphasize faith because that's what... John is after. He gives us his thesis uh, sentence for the whole book in John 20, 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. So belief in Jesus is the purpose of the gospel of John. And one of the ways in which John is trying to help us gain life in Christ through belief in Christ is to compare and contrast a true and a false faith using Judas and Peter as examples. And uh, let me give you an example of of when this begins. And I think it begins in chapter 6, 
the feeding of 5,000. Listen to how this is, uh, how John tells this story. This is in John 6, the sermon, remember that uh, he was preaching to a massive crowd and, and shrunk that crowd very small after this sermon, uh, which I think many of the people left because of this, at this point, at verse 51, Jesus said, I am the living bread that comes down from heaven, that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Uh, Now picture a Billy Graham rally, stadium-sized crowd, and Jesus is not doing an altar call saying, hey, come to the front, pray and receive. And he he is saying, uh, if you're really my disciple, if you want to live forever, eat my flesh and drink my blood. (laughs) <laughs> not, uh, not, the, not the type of sermon that builds a big crowd. Verse 60 says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus said to them, do you take offense at this? The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Listen, but uh, verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and who it was who would betray Him. And He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless it is granted Him by the Father. And after this, listen, many of His, what are these people called? Disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Jesus said to the 12, he looks over to to the apostles and says, you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus says to them, did I not choose you the 12, yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas who was going to betray him. So Jesus knew uh, that Judas was the apostate, the betrayer. They didn't know that. Judas didn't know that. Uh, Remember at the Last Supper, Jesus says, one of you will betray me. And they all go, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Everybody is checking themselves and nobody knows it's Judas at that point. He, he's with the 12 this three years. He's laughing at the jokes. He's sitting at the table. He's, he's walking and ministering with them. He's, he's traveling from town to town. He's agreeing with all the pure doctrinal teaching of Jesus. He has good theology. He's in good accountability structures with Christ and the apostles for three years. He's at daily prayer meetings. You can't be discipled better than Judas was discipled. That's why it's troubling when people will say, you know, somebody will walk away from the Lord and someone will say, well, they just weren't discipled well. As if had they been discipled well, they wouldn't have walked away from the Lord. And I just think of John 6. Not only did Judas leave, but many of those who were disciples walked away from Christ and from 
the true disciples and never returned again. Their problem was not discipleship. Their problem was not the theology they were hearing. The problem was not the preacher. The problem was their heart of unbelief. There were many Judases in that crowd that day. This is what John says later in his epistle, 1 John 2, 19. They went out from us because they were not of us. For if they would have been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. So look, here's a few things we know. A true Christian cannot lose their salvation. Uh, we, we know this. Read John 6, read John 10, read John 15, read John 17. Uh, Jesus is cleared. Nobody can snatch them out of my hand. I will raise them up on the last day. True believers cannot lose their salvation. We also know that carnal Christianity is a lie. That you can't be a believer born again with the Spirit of God in you and live habitually in unrepentant sin for years. That's not possible. Read the book of 1 John. And there's many passages warning about those who've professed faith in Christ, but on the final day, God will say to them, I never knew you. Listen to Hebrews 6, 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted of the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. It's impossible. Why? Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm. As there's no question about this. There are people that sit in church week after week after month after month, year after year, hardening their heart week after week, month after month, year after year because they're not believing what they're hearing. They haven't really received it and submitted to it. And one day they will prove that by walking away and they'll prove they never really had faith. They didn't lose their salvation. They never had it. Now, you say, why are you pointing all this out? Well, here, here's why I'm pointing all this out. Because there are points in Peter's life where he is unrecognizable from Judas. You can't tell a difference. I mean, especially on the night of the crucifixion. You're looking at Judas betraying Christ with a kiss. This demonic evil action that Jesus predicted would happen. And then you look over at Peter and he's over there denying Christ three times with curses, which Jesus predicted would happen. And you're going, these aren't two men that look like they're headed on the path of life. Both these men look like they're headed on an off-ramp to dis- on, the, on the path of destruction. You can't really tell a difference. I think John wants us to feel the danger that Peter's in. Now, some, somebody may say, Pastor, look, I, I think you're taking this, you're making this more serious than it actually is. Peter's just an immature believer. You know, he's just an immature Christian. I think you're making a bigger deal of this than, than is necessary. But I, listen, I agree. He is an immature Christian, but immature Christians can do great damage to their souls through sin. 
And this is building up, okay? This isn't, a, this isn't the first time Peter's in trouble. Listen to the buildup. Matthew 16, 21, Jesus is predicting his death and resurrection. Peter looks at him and pulls him aside and rebukes Jesus. This shall never happen to you. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. I mean, Peter's outright denying the gospel. You're not going to die for sin. Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. That, that pride and self-reliance in Peter leads to John 13, 37, where this happens. Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. And then we know a few hours after Jesus predicted that Peter would fall away in Matthew 26, they're in Gethsemane. Jesus is agonizing in prayer. He knows he's about to go to the cross. He looks over to the disciples and says, watch with me. And then Jesus went off and prayed. Uh, to pray, he came back and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, could you not watch with me an hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. But what did Peter not do? He didn't watch and pray. And therefore he fell into temptation. No more than an hour after that, we find him in John eighteen seventeen. a little servant girl comes to him and says, are you not one of this man's disciple? And he said, I'm not. Now the servant and the officer made a charcoal fire. Remember that. Because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. And they said to him, are you not one of his disciples? And he denied it. I am not. Actually, in uh, Mark's account of this, it says that he invoked a curse upon himself as he denied Christ. I do not know the man of whom you speak. He, he denied Christ, it says, with a, with a curse, with an oath. And, and remember what's happening. As Peter's over here denying Christ over this little charcoal fire, in, in the Gospel of John, John is paralleling these two events. Christ is going through all of his trials before the Jewish and Roman authorities over here, and Peter's over here denying Christ at the same time, within earshot. I mean, this is right by each other. This isn't on the other side of the city. They could have seen each other, heard each other. They were so close. And he's telling these stories parallel. And, and I would imagine Peter was sitting there denying Christ and thinking nobody else sees this. Maybe the little servant girl, maybe, maybe, maybe some of these officers are hearing what I'm saying. He did not think that Christ knew about what was going on. But look at what Luke twenty-two sixty says. At the third denial... He said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And listen, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. The Lord looked at Peter while he was denying Christ the third time. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord and how he said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You know, that's the same way they described Judas when he betrayed Christ. He went out and wept bitterly. 
And here's Peter going out and weeping bitterly. What do we learn about that? Tears don't really matter that much, do they? If Judas can cry after his moment of sin and Peter can cry after his moment of sin and Esau can cry after his moment of sin. Remember Hebrews chapter 12 says something interesting. Esau found no chance when he sold his birthright, found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So Esau's crying over his sin. Judas is crying over his sin. Peter's crying over his sin. Uh, Our tears don't seem to matter that much. They aren't necessarily a sign of repentance. Many people feel bad in the moment. They hate the consequence of their sin. And look, I'm not saying Peter didn't legitimately feel bad or he isn't feeling real remorse or shame or guilt. He is. I mean, can you, can you imagine the weight of guilt and shame that, that would have been upon Peter at this point? How crushing that would have been. I mean, I've had moments in my own life where, where literally the weight of guilt and, and, and shame for sin felt physically painful. Uh, the psalmist actually describes this as eating away at my bones, that gnawing at him. The psalmist says, until I confess my sin, he, he, he says, it was like it was eating me alive. I, I remember once in college, the Lord gave me a clear enough vision of my sin uh, that I, I became terrified. I actually hid under a desk in the fetal position, crying, feeling like God was going to strike me down. And my sins weren't near as serious as Peter's denying Christ with curses. I mean, it is hard to, to fathom emotionally, spiritually, psychologically the sense of regret and failure that must have been upon Peter at this point. Especially if he began to notice some, some things. Pastor Kent pointed this out last week. The charcoal fire. Remember that connection that, that Kent made? I wonder if Peter recognized that. You know, Jesus had seen Peter standing over a charcoal fire when Peter denied him. And now Jesus is at the beach with these men and he prepares a meal for them on what? A charcoal fire. You think Peter made the connection? That Jesus is gently revealing to him? I remember. I remember, Peter, I didn't forget your three denials. I remember what you said over that charcoal fire. And I'm preparing this charcoal fire to condemn him, to pound him deeper. No, to restore his soul. What, what, an, what an amazing act of grace from the Lord I mean, this so powerfully affected Peter what's about to happen here that he says in 1 Peter 5.10, after you, he says this to other believers, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He says what he did for me, he's going to do for you. Galatians 6.1 says, if anyone is caught in a transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. That's what Jesus is doing for Peter. 
This is incredibly gentle, the way that Jesus restores Peter's soul. Let's look at this in verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord. You know I love you. I'll stop. Why love? Why not do you trust me? Do you fear me? Do you believe me? Why is he concerned with Peter's love? I think it's because this whole conversation is about discipleship. He uses the word disciple three times here. He's very concerned about Peter teaching and caring for the sheep. He says, follow me twice. It's about discipleship. And I don't know what, y'all, what everybody here has been taught about discipleship, but I'll tell you this about discipleship. Discipleship is all about loving Christ. That's what discipleship is in its essence. It's about loving Christ. When you, when you tear it all away and get it down to the very base bones and essence of what it is, it is about loving Christ. It was that way in the old covenant. What is the fundamental duty of man to love God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus is concerned with discipleship, therefore he's concerned about Peter's love for him. And here's the deeper theological truth up underneath this. Jonathan Edwards said it well. We devote ourselves to what we love most. We devote ourselves to what we love most. So if Edwards is right, and I think he is, if you can get someone to love Christ, they will be a disciple of Christ who makes disciples of Christ. It it comes back to love. And so Jesus knows, if Peter loves me, he will trust me. He will worship me. He will obey me. He will care for my church. Everything flows out of that one central and all-consuming reality. Everything. Love for Christ. And then look at how Jesus says it. Do you love me more than these? What does he mean by more than these? Who are the these? Some people say, well, it's, it's the fishing boat. It's his career. It's his old life. Possibly. I think what he's saying is, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Because he used to think he did. He, he would brag about how, how devoted he was to Christ and how much he loved Christ more than all the other disciples. If they all fall away, I won't. Remember that? That was just a few days before this. If they all fall away, I'm not falling away. I'll go to death for you, Christ. And Jesus is going, do you love me more than these now? You still feel this way about yourself? You still think you love me more than all the others, Peter? He's testing his humility. And, and this is, it's important to understand, and you can't see it in the, uh, the English here. The Greek is, and you can see this in every commentary you read, they point this out. There's, there's four words uh, in Greek for love. Two of those words are being used here, back and forth. Um, and, and so Jesus says to Peter, do you agape me? That's the strongest word for love. Uh, more than these. And Peter says, Lord, you know that I phileo you, a lesser form of love. That's an important thing to notice. Peter uses intentionally the lesser 
word for love than what Jesus brings up because I believe in the presence of the Lord, he can't play church. He's got to be honest. He's got to come clean. And maybe for the first time in Peter's life, he's honest in the presence of Christ and there's no hint of self-righteousness in him. He's been humbled. He's been utterly humbled. And, and guys, some of us know what this is like. It is glorious and it is devastating to be humbled, truly humbled. It's glorious because you see yourself more accurately. And it's devastating because you see yourself more accurately. This is where Peter's at. What a, what a gift when God does this to you. If you ever get to the point where you really are humbled, that's a gift. Peter's finally able to see how small and unimpressive his love for Christ really is. He, he can't call his love agape. He has to call it phileo, the lesser form. He's done viewing himself more highly than he ought to. He's done judging himself off his best moments. He also now is going to factor in his worst moments with how he views himself. Verse 16, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Verse 17, he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And this time Jesus changes words and says, phileo. He doesn't say agape this third time. And it says, Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? I think it fully hits Peter at this point. Jesus remembers my three denials. He's now asked me three questions. It hits him. And he says, you know everything. You know I love you. As some of the most honest moments that I've had before the Lord were in, in times of trial were not those times that, you know, you just storm the throne room of God and you order this eloquent, bold prayer. But they were, they were times where I would just lay before the Lord and just say, you know, Lord. You know. I'm done comparing myself with others. I'm done judging myself. You know, Lord, what's in my heart. You know how much I do or don't love you. Again, you can't see this in the English, but in the Greek, it's this back and forth. Do you agape me? Peter says, you know I phileo you. Do you agape me, Peter? You know I phileo you. Do you phileo me? Peter says, you know I phileo you, Lord. And some scholars actually say this is, don't pay attention to that. It's not important. I disagree. Uh, I, I disagree with that. I believe Jesus is drop, dropping down on Peter's level and he's using that word phileo to show, I will use you where you're at. I'm not done with you, Peter. There's, some of you here need to hear this from Christ. 
I'm not done with you. I know what you've done. I know how many times you've fallen. I know exactly how many times you've fallen. And I'm not done with you. You know, guys, whoever is fully ready to serve the Lord, (laughs) to serve the Lord, the risen Lord, who is ever truly ready? I mean, when you have that baby in your hands and the Lord is so kind to give you a child and it's in your hands, are you ready to raise that child in the ways of the Lord? I mean, really? You read a parenting book, somebody told you something, gave you some advice, you ready? You, are you ever ready, even if you're gifted to teach, are you ready to handle the living and abiding word of God in any context or situation? Are you ever really ready to do that? If, if elders uh, lay hands or the church commissions you out to be a missionary and take the gospel to the ends of the earth, are you really ready to do that work? Are you, are you ever really ready, even if you're biblically qualified to pastor, to care for the church of God? The church of God, not my church or our church or God's church. Even the apostles in 2 Corinthians say, who is sufficient for these things? They don't see their readiness in themselves. They say our sufficiency, our readiness is in God. And so Jesus is showing Peter, I will take you where you're at. In fact, I want you weak because my power is made perfect in weakness. That's where Jesus wants him. That's when he becomes qualified to lead the church in weakness. Peter needs to be at this point and Jesus needs him there. And he says to him, if you love me, and I know you do, Peter, will you tend my sheep? This is a recommissioning service. I don't believe Peter ever lost his place as an apostle or his uh, leadership of, of the church. I do believe that his sin made others around him, the other disciples probably question his qualifications and they needed to hear this. I think even more than that, Peter needed to hear and regain confidence that Christ was with him in light of his sin. This is where many Christians get held up. I I, I sometimes wonder how fruitful Christians could actually be. Maybe how fruitful our church could be if we didn't get caught up on this issue right here. You know, there's there's no shortcuts to this. If you want to be mature and, and put away childish ways spiritually, you can't, you can't bypass this right here. This is a kind of a rite of passage. This is a, a, a kind of coming of age, a transitional moment where you put away childish ways and you, you grow up in Christ. This is what it looks like spiritually. You say, what do you mean? One of the greatest problems in the church today, in my opinion, is that many Christians don't know how to deal with their sin and the guilt that comes from their sin. They don't know how to adequately and rightly deal with it. How many believers live with, it's like uh, I was, me and the kids were studying uh, Pilgrim's Progress this week, and Christian walks around with that burden on his shoulders. You know, that, that he just 
he just carries this massive thing with him all through, the, all through his life. He, he doesn't know how to deal with the guilt. That's many Christians. They just walk into church, weighed down with guilt, don't really sing, can't really rejoice at the table. The guilt, it's just there. They don't know how to deal with it. All through the day, just there's no thankfulness in their hearts as, as they go through the, the week. The guilt, they don't know how to get rid of the burden. So few Christians know how to let Jesus restore their soul. Guys, if you see a, if you see a Christian who's, who's standing next to you in, in, in a service of worship and they seem to be full of joy and they seem to have some sort of love for the brothers or, or freedom in the Christian life that you feel like you don't have, I can tell you there's nothing special about them. It's not like they walked in here this week and they didn't have sin in their life. They didn't, it's not like they, didn't, they had a perfect week coming into a worship service. What's the difference between a mature and immature Christian? It is largely this. Mature believers have learned how to let Jesus restore their soul from the effects of sin. Every mature Christian has learned this. Here's why I'm saying this. Philippians 3.13. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward toward what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think like this. What does a mature Christian look like? They think like this. They forget what's behind. They have the ability to press forward toward what's ahead And Peter isn't mature yet, but he's learning, and he's learning how to allow Jesus to restore his soul, which includes two things, the removal of guilt and shame, and the recommissioning from Christ back into the work of the ministry. The removal of guilt happens when Peter hears the words of Christ. Listen, you've got to stay in the Word daily to be restored by Christ. Peter is restored by the words of Christ. It's the words of Christ that are restoring him. And he's believing the words of Christ and his soul is becoming healthy again. That's how it works. That's why you read your Bible. And the guilt is removed because what, is, what, is, what happens? We, we get hammered by the law and rightly so. That's the purpose of the law. You sinned. You did it. Nobody made you do it. The penalty for sin is death. It is not okay to turn your back on the Christ who's bled and died for you. Peter's sitting there going, it's not okay okay for me to deny Christ while he's literally over here going to trial and death for my sins. That's not okay. You know, like the hymn says, my guilt and cross laid on his shoulders. My guilt and cross laid on his shoulders. We know in our conscience, that's not okay for me to sin against the Lord who's died for me. And so that guilt comes. And the mature allow that to lead them to repentance, belief in the gospel, and then press on in obedience. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, feed my sheep. Look, look at how, listen to how J.C. Ryle puts it. Let us beware of repentance without evidence. 
Let's beware of repentance without evidence. True repentance is demonstrated over time. It's an ongoing obedience to the will of God. You get up and you go. Psalm 51. You know, we, I hope you love this psalm and spend a lot of time there. David's praying a prayer of confession. In that prayer of confession, toward the end, he shifts to the restoration of his soul. And he says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and restore a right spirit within me, or renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. And listen, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. You hear the flow? Confession of sin. Restore my heart. Then, once you've restored my heart, commission me back out so that sinners will return to you so that I can do something profitable in the kingdom and not sit here and wallow in self-pity. You see how you have to move past that for the sake of Christ. And Peter is saying to Peter, or Jesus is saying to Peter, get over yourself. I know what you did. That's why I died for it. Go. Serve me. Care for my sheep. I'm going to close us with saying this to us. Um, I would not trade for anything in the world the ministry of Jesus to me to restore my soul. This is one of the greatest blessings of being in Christ is to have the risen, resurrected Son of God from heaven still restoring the souls of His fallen and and sinful saints. That the guilt that you carry can be wiped away. That the apathy and the passionless, we get like that. We just begin to not care about all the things that matter. He can make you care again. The fact that He does that for us after we sin and grieve the Spirit, is that not the sweetest blessing of Christ in the Christian life? What an amazing ministry that Christ, sitting at the right hand of God, still does for us. It is, we just don't deserve it. It's such a grace. Um, I want to encourage us as we go to the table. You know, this table is not your ministry to Jesus. It's His ministry to you. This isn't you coming and bringing something to Him. This is Him giving something to you. He gives you Himself. He gives you His body, His blood. He restores your soul. Amen? Let's come to the Lord. Let's believe the gospel. Let's let Him restore our souls again, even today. Uh, If you're new, uh, the way we come to this table, we believe that someone must have received Christ by faith, been baptized, and Jesus welcomes them to the table. Uh, If that's you, please join us. Uh, If you'll be refraining, uh, in your bulletin on page two, there's some meaningful prayers uh, that you can pray during this time. And as always, if you have questions or want to talk more about salvation or, or Christ, uh, please see me or Pastor Ken after the service. We'd be happy to do that. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son to die for sinners. You did not 
come for the righteous. You came for Peter's. You came for people who, like Peter, deny you. We have denied you at pivotal moments when we could have obeyed you. You gave us an opportunity and we blew it. And yet, Lord, you, you forgive sin and you restore our souls. We thank you that this is possible because of the blood that you shed on the cross for us. You're rising from the dead. You're sending your Holy Spirit. We pray at the table, Lord, you would renew us, that we would believe these things and be renewed in your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.